0: Good morning everybody. Last week we saw how our desire to elevate ourselves over others through boasting reflected our desire for greatness and glory and honor and eventually our inevitable slide into self-righteousness, which boasting obviously clearly reveals. Um, And I don't know about you all this week, but Uh, I caught myself numerous times um, with a boast about myself on the tip of my tongue. Uh, For a few days, like maybe until Tuesday or Wednesday, Anna and I were uh, joke boasting in in ourselves until I actually felt my conscience um, catching me a little bit, uh, cautioning me. Um, Am I really joke boasting or is there some real truth and sincerity to elevate myself even in these jokes with my wife. So I stopped joke boasting, uh, but I found myself on the verge of, of, of wanting to boast uh, more often than I would have liked to have admitted. Um, and I found myself asking the questions, all right, am I, am I really this insecure, um, do I have that great of a desire to, to show my superiority or dominance over others? Um, and you know, when when you have thoughts or feelings like that, um, it's it's complicated to answer them, and it involves you know, flesh versus spirit, uh, thought versus action or deed, and, and other important clarifying ideas that you've got to consider before you start judging and evaluating yourself. And we're going to get into those as we go into chapters. Uh, five, six, seven, and eight. Um, but it, it clearly did reveal um, my propensity to, to boast, and, and probably not mine alone. You know, I think it's all a, a challenge for all of us. Uh, but what was equally, what was a reassuring were the corresponding thoughts, and I, and I trust the work of the Holy Spirit, um, in, in coming alongside those desires to boast were these these ideas. You don't have to boast. You have the righteousness of God through Christ. Your identity and future is secure in the calling of God upon your life through Christ and your unity with Him and the Holy Spirit who empowers you. Um, you do not need to boast. I, I, I felt and and heard those those thoughts and feelings as well, which was again reassuring. It's that that tension is really a, an, an aspect of, of, of the confidence that we should have. In the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, that we have that that tension. Um, but you know, the desires for greatness they don't go away, and they're not supposed to. As we saw last week in chapter two, uh, you know, Paul says, "Those who by persevering and doing good uh, seek for glory and honor, honor and immortality, God will bless them with eternal life." So this this desire for greatness. Uh, and honor and glory is—it's—it's—it's it's, it's what God has given to us, um, and it's something that we're not just supposed to experience. When we think of eternal life, we think of something in the future. Eternal life is not just a future reality when Jesus returns and everything is going to be okay. Eternal life is something that God has promised to us uh, now. It's something that he's promised to us now through the, through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, which he's gonna, we're going to continue to learn more about as these chapters unfold. But in the midst of these desires for greatness and for glory, we all have moments of feeling uh, disappointment, uh, failure, and self-loathing hatred of ourselves. Uh, and for most of us, I think, if we're honest with ourselves, these moments last longer than moments. Sometimes they go for hours, sometimes they go for days, or sometimes they'll go for years and contribute to pretty substantial um, mental health issues, anxiety, depression, and, and other problems like that that really debilitate us. Um, so we, and, I, and I think that, that that's also our desires to be great, but our recognition that we're not um, that is, is, both of them are a reflection of this, of this longing for righteousness that we have, this longing for, for glory and for honor. It's so deep within us. Uh, it's so deep within us. It's, it's part of, you know, the scriptures teach in Ecclesiastes that God has, has put within us a consciousness of him, and, and, a, and a sense that we belong to something eternal, and uh, that those longings are expressed in our desires for greatness, in our, in, our, in, our, in our self-loathing that we experience when we're not great. We boast in our good performances to counteract these, these negative feelings. And our desire, but sometimes we, you know, sometimes we boast, and sometimes we would just like to boast, but we're not able to boast because we don't see anything good within ourselves to boast in. And so uh, that also compounds the feelings of of depression or anxiety or self loathing, um, and then the reality of this the reality of this can just become uh, debilitating and, and wiping us out. Sometimes that that sense of the reality of an our, of our inadequacy can drive us to succeed, so we further boast in it. But a lot of times, this recognition of our anxieties and inadequacies really weaken us. And so either way, in this desire to boast in our performance, how great we are, or in our realization that we can't boast, either way we are controlled um, by, this, by this sense of inadequacy, uh, this sense of, of wanting to be great um, but aren't. Uh, this sense that we would love to be able to uh, perform at a high level uh, against whatever standards we have in our life that we're trying to perform against. We'd like to be really obedient. I mean, the, the scriptures are using this, this, the idea of law. It would really like to say we are perfect up against the law um, or whatever standard that we have that we're trying to, to meet up with but we can 't i can't we can 't do this, and so we also can 't just set these feelings aside i was I was reading this week um, in a uh, I think it was actually just doing some research on Christian psychology and ran across the, a Christian psychology clinic here in the Twin Cities and uh, just reading a, a blog from a Christian psychologist and um, the the recognition of these negative thoughts was there and trying to solve these negative thoughts. Um, But the solution that was being offered uh, was really just the idea of we've got to learn and grow in our ability to set these thoughts aside, these negative thoughts, these negative feelings. And um, I think that that's really not a solution. We have to think about them and we have to interpret them. We have to evaluate them. We have to recognize that to some degree, the feelings and thoughts that we have are true. We don't match up to law. We just don't. We don't match up to the performance standards that we set for ourselves in this world, whether they are God's moral laws or just some other standards of what we believe is going to make us great. We have to recognize and consider it true that we don't match up with them. Okay? And then we have to deal with that. We have to deal with that. Um, and I think that to, to deal with it, and this is, this is kind of a, a slow movement into what Paul works through in you know, essentially chapters three, four, five, six, seven, and eight out of Romans. So we're just going to kind of steadily grow in our comprehension of what it means to live not according to law, but according to the Spirit by faith. And so last week we saw foundations for this movement. Foundations for being able to throw off law and evaluating ourselves according to law or other performance standards uh, and to move into this direction by faith. So the first thing, uh, God through the scriptures has already recognized that in and of ourselves we are completely unrighteous and without any good at all, all right? That's all of what chapters 1, 2, and 3 are about. While we bear the image of God, all right, And are capable of manifesting aspects of God's goodness and God's nature because we're humans and we're made in in his image, all right? So there are some good things that we sense and feel and even do, but outside of Christ, we are are unrighteous. Even Even in the good things that we do because we are in his image, it doesn't change the fact that we are sinners, that we have sinned, and that we are not righteous. And so God has declared us unrighteous. We are found guilty of sin, and we are found deserving of death. We can't change that. But I think that that's also comforting, all right? That's comforting. Because it's not something that surprises God. Our sin is not something that disappoints God. Uh, if we walk in sin, it, dis- it displeases him. But that's a different idea, and we'll get there once we get into chapters 7 and 8 a little bit. Um, but God is not surprised with it. God is not disappointed in us when we sin. And it's imp- it's, it's, again, it's, it's a comforting thought. We need to just have uh, that at, the, at our foundation because it's something that, that we know because God has told us. We know that because God has told us. So that's the first part of the the foundations of what it means to live by faith. Um, The second thing is that God has made promises to humanity um, and is required to fulfill those promises to express his own righteousness. Uh, And in the expression of his own righteousness, he has to be just. So God put forward Jesus Christ to address both things. In his justice, uh, the sin of humanity needed to be paid for, all right? The, the verdict had been given, we as humans were guilty, we were going to be punished. So God in his righteousness, uh, in order to atone for humanity, put forth his son to take that punishment in our place, okay? That was God's righteousness demonstrated through his justice. God's righteousness demonstrated through his love and his mercy and his promise keeping to bring life from the dead which is what he promised man and woman in the garden, what he promised to Abraham, what he's promised to his people throughout all time. God's demonstration of righteousness to be a promise keeper and to love and show mercy to us was also exhibited in his putting forth of Jesus Christ as the grace gift, who would not only die for our sins, but raise from the dead and offer through faith that gift share in Jesus's life from the dead which is the first which is the third element of the foundation we enter into Christ's death for us and Christ's life for us through faith belief in Jesus's faithfulness as a satisfactory substitution on our behalf all right this means that our performance is of no consequence It's of no consequence. Our adherence to laws, to rules, and goals is of no consequence. Our moral uprightness or lack of it is of no consequence. To come to God through faith in Jesus as liars, as thieves, as adulterers, fornicators, as deceivers, as manipulators, murderers, gluttons, oppressors, tyrants, idolaters, gossipers, slanderers, boasters, drunkards, rebels. The list can go on. Scriptures provide lots of these kinds of lists. The grace gift of God is available to all of us. All of us. Through faith. Our status as unrighteous before God as sinners is replaced. Completely replaced by the status that Jesus has as the Son of God, fully righteous. And we take on that full righteousness through faith in Jesus' faithfulness and in God's mercy and love for us. So these are the three foundations. We, we are sinners, and it's no surprise to God. It should not be any surprise to us. Second, God's grace gift of putting forth Christ demands his justice, meets the demands of justice and meets the demands of love and mercy and his promise keeping. And then three, we receive it by faith. So those, those are three ideas that are foundational for what, what it means to live by faith, what it means to not live under law, what it means to fulfill the law in our good works, but not being under the law. So that's, we had some folks come up and ask questions afterwards. It would have been great to ask during the time and maybe some of those questions will come up, but we still, we still see what God has instructed and commanded us to do. We can't throw those off, but it's how we use and think about them. It's how we interpret them. It's how we interpret our own selves, and we'll learn increasingly that faith is actually the power to fulfill the law. It actually creates an energy and zeal within us that, that pushes us forward into following God. So what do I want to do today is explain more of what faith is because the chapter four is all about faith and what it means that God has always saw and has always put forward faith over law as the means of having righteousness and this is this is a really important idea that we're gonna that we're gonna be working on today. So first thing, um, Romans four is Paul's explanation that faith has always been the means through which righteousness has been granted to humanity. The first part of the chapter looks at at two characters, Abraham and and David, and really a third, Moses. He doesn't mention Moses, um, but he's there at the very front of his mind. So Abraham was pre-Mosaic law. God's promises to Abraham started in Genesis chapter 12 and were extended in 15 and 14 and 17. And and God promised that Abraham would be a father of many nations. God promised that Abraham would have a child from his own body and from the body of his own wife. And these promises that God made to to Abraham, as Paul lays out and explains, uh, were prior to the law, prior to circumcision. And God did that so that anyone who followed in Abraham's faith would be a follower of God, right? So the second character, David, uh, was a man under the Mosaic law. Moses was hundreds of years earlier. The Mosaic law had been given uh, to Israel as its covenant to separate it from the other nations. Um, David was a man who lived under the law, but David was also a man that God had given promises to on the basis of faith. David was in the, in the, the line of, he was going to be the ancestor of the promised son who is going to come and bring life to all humanity and establish peace and justice, not only for Israel, but for all of the nations of the world. Those were promises that God made to David, independent on whether David or not was going to follow the law perfectly. And, and, and Paul explains that David understood That forgiveness was a gift from God. He said, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not take into account. The first time I read that when I was studying Romans, I went back to Psalms. You know, several of these quotes that Paul brings out of of the Old Testament are from the Psalms, and you go into the Psalms and you see a rich understanding of of God's forgiveness coming to his people on the basis of, of grace, on the basis of being a gift, not on the basis of obeying laws. And so David understood this as well, and it's in the scriptures that that David writes. And this third character, Moses. So Moses is the one who wrote the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, in which the legal codes of Moses are also present. And so Moses was writing about Abraham and his faith, showing that righteousness before God came through faith. Moses wrote that. And David was a man who read Moses every day. Psalm chapter one, blessed is the man uh, who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. That's David. And so David understood from the law. Moses wrote within the law, the law is teaching faith, all right? So you can't think of God being this, this, you know, God doesn't have two personalities and he changed when Christ came, okay? God is one. He's always been the same. He's always been of faith. There isn't an Old Testament God that has all these laws that you have to follow in order to be righteous. And since that didn't work out, he decided to send his son as plan B. All right? And then now, because we can't follow the law, we just have to trust in Christ because we couldn't be perfect, but now we can have the righteousness through Christ. All right? That, that's, not, that's not, what Paul is saying is that that is exactly the opposite God, well, not opposite, (laughs) wrong. God has always been about faith. The law was never intended to produce righteousness. The law was intended to do one thing, show our sinfulness, show our sinfulness. So what is faith? What is faith? Well, if you look up dictionary definition, which is actually pretty good it is to believe to the extent of complete trust and reliance so from this definition we can make several observations about what faith is first of all faith is different from believing right we can believe something is true without completely trusting and relying upon it for example i believe that it is true that the minnesota gophers have a great football team this year right True. Amen. Great game yesterday. However, I haven't put my faith in the Minnesota Gophers football team. I can also believe that a chair will hold me up. That doesn't require any faith. I can believe that. I can believe both things. However, if I were to consider putting a bet, putting some money on the Minnesota Gophers football team, which I wouldn't do, but if I'm going to put some money in it, that's going to require some faith because I'm starting to rely upon the gophers doing something for me, winning me more money. If I decide to sit in the chair, I now have to put my faith in that chair because I'm going to trust that it's going to hold me up when I sit in it. So we can believe a lot of things. It doesn't require faith. Faith is required, when, when um, we are depending upon it for something in our own lives. Paul says of Abraham, he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised, enough so that he staked his own future and the future of his family upon what God had promised. He moved from home all right, to have a family when his body was dead and his wife's body was dead in terms of being able to have children. But he put his trust in that God was able to do, and his actions showed that indeed he had faith, not just belief. So faith necessarily affects our lives and our well-being. And that's the second observation I want to I make. So first of all, faith is, is not just belief, it's reliance upon something that we believe. Faith requires, because faith requires us to act it's going to necessarily, to some degree, require us to take a risk. We're going to have to put our lives on the line. If it's just whether or not the chair is going to hold up, the worst thing that could happen is that we fall on the ground and maybe, maybe get a bruise. No big deal. It doesn't require a lot of faith. Uh, the other day I replaced a uh, battery and a smoke detector uh, and I had to stand on a single-column stool. Right? It required a little more faith than if I would have had done the right thing and gone out and got a ladder uh, instead of trying to balance myself on this wobbly stool four feet in the air. But I had to put my faith in that stool, more faith than I usually put in when I sit on it. So it, our, our, our faith sometimes may seem to be foolish. I may seem to be foolish. To somebody whose security is in is in money, it's going to seem foolish to them for those who, who put their faith in God to care for them to give 10% or more of their money away. So sometimes faith doesn't seem sensible. Uh, sometimes faith seems to be very foolish. I'm sure Abraham's family thought he was nuts. You guys are going to move from home, move away from family, because God has told you that you're going to have a child, but you're both in you know, 90 to 100 years old, that's crazy. That's crazy. And sometimes faith is like that. It's going to test our affections because we're going to have to act upon our belief. It's going it's to test um, what we're putting our hope in. It's going to test what we love. It's going to test what we are finding security and joy in. We have built our lives around a lot of things that we rely on. If you just, I just was reading this week um, some more stories coming out of Flint, Michigan bec- with their water. Um, they are noticing that children who have grown up in Flint, Michigan drinking this water with lead in it are showing uh, a, a lot higher rate of learning disabilities and disorders because of the lead that they were exposed to. Okay? So for years, the people of Flint, Michigan were putting their faith in safe water from Flint, putting their faith in the people in the city and in the state that said that, hey, we're going to deliver safe water to your homes. Uh, Their faith was betrayed. We all do that, right? We put our faith in the water that we drink from the tap and that it's going to be healthy and that it's not going to cause us harm and our kids harm. That's going to really affect us for many years. Some of these changes are not, uh, uh, they can't take them back. These kids are going to be affected by that for years to come. You know, so then you have uh, anger, frustration, uh, probably malicious thoughts and feelings and all kinds of negative things and depression okay, that come as a result of, of things failing that we put our, our faith in. That's why God calls us throughout the Bible, lots in the Proverbs, hold on to loving kindness and faithfulness. Civil society, all of our relationships depend upon us being faithful to what we have been given to do. And this brings us to a third observation. Faith is the consideration of something to be true enough to act upon it. Faith always has a foundation. Faith always has some content to it. The strength of our faith is really important to get. The strength of our faith is not what matters. It's the strength of what we put our faith in that matters. Okay, in a chair. In a chair, most of the time we know that when we sit in a chair, it's going to hold us up. Okay, we don't have to run all of the all of the. Uh, mathematical and scientific calculations on wood types and joints and structures and all that kind of thing before we sit in a chair, right? Our, our confidence in all that stuff doesn't have to be there for the chair to hold us up. The chair just has to hold us up. It's not my faith that holds us up if I sit in the chair. It's the qualities of the chair. So that's the third thing. So the first thing... Um, is that faith is reliance upon something that we believe in. The second thing is that it's going to affect, because we are relying upon it, it's going to affect what we, what we love and, and how we feel. It's going to affect our affections. It's going to test uh, what we find hope and joy in. And the third thing is that it, the strength of our faith is not what matters, but the faithfulness of what we put our faith in. So what is faith in God? What does it mean to have faith in God? Faith in God is being convinced that he is able to do what he promises. just, Just what Paul said there about Abraham. Abraham was convinced that God could do what he said he would do. It's critical that we understand this. Many times our faith in God is based upon what we would like God to do, not what God has promised to do. What has he, at the most fundamental level, promised to do? Well, at the most fundamental level, and this is what Paul draws out. This didn't grab a random example from Scripture. He brought up the example of God's promise to Abraham and to Sarah that they would bear a child. And Paul says, literally, uh, their bodies were dead. And so he says they believed that God could bring life to their dead bodies To call into being that which did not exist before, which was all of the live things needed to have a baby, right? They didn't exist in Abraham and Sarah. So God is able, and his most fundamental promises to humanity is that he is going to bring life from dead. That's what he told man and woman in the garden. You are going to be the mother. Well, he, act, he, told, <laughs> he told woman, you are going to have a child, and the child is going is to conquer and destroy that snake. That snake is what brought death. Adam, in the naming of his wife, because she went from woman to Eve, right? From chapter 3 to chapter, at the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4. She went from woman to Eve. Eve means mother of all life. Adam realized that this this man that that his wife or future woman would birth um, was going to do something that they were not able to do. Conquer the snake that brought death. And so the first couple, man and woman, recognized that, that God is about bringing life back where death has now conquered. That was the original promise, and that's what God continues to do. Paul concludes the chapter by saying Abraham's experience was not just for his sake, but for ours as well. He is writing so that we would have a belief in God to bring life back from the dead, not just in our future bodies resurrecting from the grave to live for eternity in union with with Christ and each other. That's part of it, okay? Getting to heaven is part of it. But what Paul is really speaking to here is our ability to, to, to conquer sin and death in our lives now and to experience glory and honor and immortality now, eternal life now, to overcome sin and death that it leads to now, so that's what, he is, that's what he is wanting us to experience. So how do we experience this? If we come back to our original problem, the inconsistencies and in our aspirations for greatness and for glory, and the realization that we are uh, completely inadequate, and then our self-loathing and failures and disappointing, we have this, this problem. What is it going to take to move beyond this problem into the life of eternal? life that God promises. So again, Paul's going to continue to unfold this as we get into the next chapters. Um, and as, you know, if we think about where we're at in relationship with the rest of the book, eventually we, we get to chapter 12, where he wants us collectively to commit ourselves together as a unified people in service and sacrifice to God and to his purposes. And then, he, and then Paul lays all of these commands upon us to act a certain way with each other in in sharp contrast to the world around us so that we are visible witnesses to God on this earth as, as expressions of, of kingdom life. So that's that's where this is going. That's where this is going. But we've got to change how we think about our performances. You know, this, uh, this week it was a Thursday or Friday. I can't remember which day it was, but... Um, Sometimes I I have some like just mind numbing work, uh, busy work that I do, and so I throw the TV on. I end up staying up later than I want, you know. Then I feel bad about how late I'm staying up, and then the next morning when I didn't get up as early as I would have liked to, I'm like, okay, I could have got my mind numbing busy work done in about a third or half of the time that it took if I hadn't been watching TV, right? So then so. So then you get up, and you get, um, maybe you all don't experience this, uh, something like it, I'm sure, and then you're just kind of feeling bad, right? Oh, I did it again. All these all these various performance standards that we have in our minds, okay? I need to be up at this time so I can be this effective and this efficient, and that would be great, and I'm going to kick life in the rear, and I'm going to conquer tomorrow, all right? We all have in various... Various ways of articulating that, okay? And <laughs> we're constantly failing against them, right? We're constantly failing against them. So how do we deal with the fact that we have all of these performance standards that we don't meet up to? And that's really what we have to begin to learn to interpret well, okay? It's, it's, there are laws, but we are not under law, <laughs> There are commands, but we are not under commands. Um, On one hand, there are many people that are quite disciplined and are able to perform at high levels. As a whole, these people love systems, laws, and rules, and structures, um, and they can follow them for the most part. However, when they come face-to-face with failure or find themselves increasingly unable to bear the weight of that performance level, (laughs) the end can be quite catastrophic. On the other hand, there are many people who are not very disciplined and not able to perform at high levels, but they really want to. And so they bury themselves in in self-loathing and depression because they can't, uh, and then they come to ruin because of all of the mental health challenges, um, or they just find the rules and standards so uh, unmeetable and debilitating that they say, you know what, forget it, I'm going to reject them all and live how I want to and not care about any sort of performance. That's... The two versions, that's legalism and that is licentiousness that we see as constant tensions in the Scripture. So what is the solution? We have to recognize, we have to recognize that laws and other performance standards were never there for us to meet up with and perform so that we could boast and see ourselves as great. It's not what they're there for. That's what, it's tempting for us to go there. That's why sin needs the law to create transgressions. It's not what the law is for. You are not going to be great by accomplishing law or any other performance standard. It's not the intent. The intent of laws and other performance standards that we create are to show one thing. We are unrighteous. We are sinners. We are in need of another source of righteousness. And that's where the gospel comes in. The law has done its job. Yes, we are miserable human beings, okay? If you feel that way, check the box. Mission accomplished, law, good job. We have to move from there. We have to move from, we have to be, we have to move from getting down on ourselves about being miserable human beings. That is so hard to do. Even with things as menial as I got up 20 minutes later than I wanted to because I watched TV an hour later than I wanted to. Ridiculous thing, but you know what? The feelings come over me. The feelings come over us. The law has done its job. The law has done its job. Again, God didn't have plan A. I'm going to put a law out there and see how they do, and if they can perform well against it, I'll consider them righteous. Oh, they didn't do it. I'm going to have to send my son, he's going to have to die and then if they have faith in my son, then they can be righteous, right? That's not how it worked. That is not how it worked. Plan A has always been, Jesus will come, die for the sins of humanity and for the corruption of the planet and be renewed and resurrected from life in order to lead the way as the firstborn from Colossians chapter one, to lead the way in a new paradigm of life. That's always been the plan. And it has always been the plan that our ability to walk and, and step with that righteousness is through faith in that gift that God gives us. So why is it so hard to not live by law? Well, I think that shame and guilt and fear stir up emotions, and the solution seems to be clear. I'm going to stop doing what creates shame, and I'm going to start doing the opposite. That's the, I think that. that if this causes this, I'm going to do the opposite. And it seems like if we do the opposite, it should should bring restoration to us. But as we all know, it just leads to more failure because eventually we just fail again. And I think that that also second reason why it's so hard um, is that there's an element in us that wants to fix what is causing suffering and death in our lives. And that's an element of self-righteousness. We can fix these problems. It's a high level of confidence in our ability to address the problems. That, and, and the challenge of faith is that it, it doesn't seem like um, God brings life how we think he should bring it. He doesn't seem to solve the solutions the way we would want them solved. We think if God were real and all-powerful and all-loving, he would do something about suffering and death in our world. And it's hard to believe in God's promises to bring life when we see so much death and suffering around us. We think if God cared, he would do something. And since he's not, how can I believe him? And this exists kind of in a worldview level as reasons why some people don't believe in him. But I think it also is possible for us to, to think this way. Our longing for solutions pushes us to not wait on God. It pushes us to get anxious and to work and create some sort of, of structure or system or law or rule to solve our problems, which creates ultimately more uh, anxiety and depression and fear and anger, leading to more d- deeper problems. And, at this, and all the while, in our pursuit of these solutions, we are, we are really holding at arm's length the desire and the power that God has for us to bring life into the midst of the suffering.